0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to The Haunted Collection, with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, back with more tales to creep along your spine. Welcome back and Happy New Year. It's now 2024 and this is my first episode of the new year. I had a wonderful holiday and I hope you did too. And now let's get back to our haunted collection show for the new year. But first, as always, I want to invite you to my website, My Haunted Dolls, where you can shop in my store and purchase Any of the books I've written, scary stories, supernatural novels, all kinds of books out there that I've written, and you can purchase your autographed copy out there. You can also follow the link to my Redbubble store to buy all kinds of merchandise with the show logo and also my Haunted Dolls logo, all sorts of creepy doll images And spooky ghostly images on those shirts and hats and home and office accessories, pet accessories, you name it, it's out there. So be sure to go out there and check out the Redbubble store and show your support today by purchasing some of the merchandise. And if you like to read books on Kindle, all of my books are available out there. Also, there's a few on Audible, audiobook. And also you can buy the books at Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, most online book retailers. So please be sure to check that out as well. And now let's get started with this first episode of the new year. I want to continue the theme I started a couple of months ago about some of the haunted highways and railroads and trains and automobiles and things like that. And tonight, of course, I have a little batch of stories here involving some roadside phantoms. So let's float on in there and see what's in store. It is said that the spirits of people who died a violent death often haunt the spot at which the death occurred. There are many drivers who will swear that they met the restless ghost of an accident victim or some other unfortunate person who died violently at the spot on the road where they died. A British truck driver named Harold Unsworth was traveling along his regular route one evening a few years ago when he stopped to pick up a young man who was hitchhiking. The hitchhiker asked for a lift to a place called the Old Beam Bridge, just a few miles down the road. Unsworth was happy to help out and gave him a lift. The young man did not turn out to be the best of companions. All during the ride he recounted, in the most gory imaginable detail, stories of the accidents that were supposed to have happened at the bridge. Unsworth was happy to see his morbid companion leave once they reached the bridge. A few months later, Unsworth was traveling the same route when he spotted the same hitchhiker at the same spot. Since the young man had not been very pleasant the first time, the truck driver was tempted to pass him by. But Harold Unsworth was basically a kind hearted fellow, and he knew that the road was pretty deserted. And that the hitchhiker might not get a ride for hours. So he stopped the truck, and the young man climbed in again, and again he said that he wanted to go to the old beam bridge. As before, the hitchhiker's conversation was a bloody account of horrible accidents at the bridge. This time, when the truck got to the bridge, the hitchhiker said he wanted to go a little further down the road. But he had to pick up a few things he had left at the bridge. And would Unsworth please just wait a moment for him? Now it was late, and Unsworth was tired and anxious to finish work and go home. But he was too polite to say anything but, Sure, I'll wait a moment for you. Unsworth waited and waited, But the hitchhiker did not come back. Finally, his patience ran out, And he swore if he ever saw that particular hitchhiker again, He would just pass him by. He got his chance about three miles later, for there, by the side of the road, stood the very same hitchhiker with his thumb out. Unsworth could not figure out how the guy got up the road that fast, but he knew that he was not going to pick him up. So, rather than slowing down, he speeded up, Just to let the fellow know that he was not going to get any more rides in that truck. Suddenly, the hitchhiker jumped out into the road right in front of the truck. Hunsworth slammed on the brakes, but there was no way he could stop in time. He was sure he hit the hitchhiker, though he did not feel any impact. Then Unsworth looked in his rearview mirror and he saw the hitchhiker, apparently uninjured, standing in the middle of the road, shaking a fist at him. The truck driver did not stick around to investigate. Unsworth was never able to come up with a reasonable or even unreasonable explanation for what had happened his best guess was that the hitchhiker was a ghost. Perhaps the ghost of one of the victims of the accidents at the old beam bridge that he had described so colorfully. In another story, Paul Corey was driving to his home in a suburb just outside of Cleveland. It was late, and he was very tired. Perhaps he wasn't being as attentive as his surroundings, as usual, but in any case, as he came over the crest of the hill, he suddenly saw the figure of a young girl directly in the headlights. She seemed to be standing right in the middle of the road. And she made no attempt to move. Perhaps the headlights may have blinded her. Paul slammed on the brakes, but there was no chance of stopping in time. He hit the girl, though the impact was not as hard as he had feared. Paul immediately stopped his car and rushed over to the girl, who was lying at the side of the road. It was clear that she was badly hurt. There was a lot of blood around her head and face. She was unconscious, but breathing. For a moment, Paul did not know what to do. He remembered, or tried to remember, all those things he had been taught in first aid class. One of the things he remembered clearly was that you are not supposed to move a person who has been seriously injured. He recalled being told that the best thing to do was cover the injured person and call for professional help. Paul had a blanket in his car with which he covered the girl. He didn't have a phone in his car, and he didn't know how long he would have to wait for someone else to come along to get help. He figured that there wasn't much traffic on this particular road late at night. He might have to wait for an hour or more, and by that time the injured girl would bleed to death. He decided that the best course of action was to leave the girl and drive to the state police headquarters, which he knew was only a few miles away. The police rushed to the scene of the accident. When they got there, they found only a blanket on the ground. However, there was some blood on the blanket. Paul was questioned at length by suspicious policemen. He simply repeated the story. And the next morning, the police searched the area with the aid of bloodhounds. They couldn't find any trace of an injured girl, nor were there any reports of a missing girl. The police would have dismissed Paul's experience as a hallucination, but in checking their records they found that a young girl had been struck and killed by a hit-and-run driver at the same spot some 15 years earlier. And at least two other drivers had reported experiences similar to Paul's. During the late 1930s, there were tales of a phantom bus in London. It would appear in the most alarming possible way. A driver would be coming along St. Mark's Road, just minding his own business, when suddenly he would see this gigantic double-decker bus careening toward him. By the time he saw the bus, there was absolutely nothing that he could do. All the hapless driver could do was hit on the brakes, wait for the crash, and pray, if he was a praying man. It's possible that some non-believers became instant converts to the power of prayer because there was no crash. The bus simply just disappears. The phantom bus caused a couple of accidents when drivers swerved in an attempt to get out of the way. Luckily, there were no serious accidents until June 11, 1933. Because of the sighting of the phantom bus, one of the drivers crashed head-on into another car. The driver of the second car Was unfortunately killed. After that, there were no more sightings of the ghost bus. Perhaps its obscure but deadly mission had finally been fulfilled after it claimed a victim. Lord Halifax was a great collector of ghostly accounts in the early years of this century. The one he attributed to a Captain Wentmore, who lived in the county of Yorkshire, is the subject of this particular tale. The captain had been hunting one day, and he was driving his small carriage to the house of a friend. He had a drive of some fourteen miles to make, and at one point had to cross a bridge over a stream. As he approached, he saw a man leaning over the railing and looking down into the river below. Noticing that the man had a bag at his side and thinking he might be tired, the captain stopped the cart that he was driving and offered to give him a lift if he was going in that direction. The man climbed into the cart without a word and sat there in silence. Captain made two attempts to draw him into conversation but gave up trying when the man made no sign of responding. They drove along in silence for some time until they came to a village. By that time it was quite dark. The inn in the village was well lighted, and some people were standing in front. One of the people who worked in the inn came forward to take Captain Wintour's horse. The man got down without one word or thanks to Captain and walked straight into the inn. Who was that man who just climbed out of my... "'Of my wagon?' he asked the fellow who was holding the horse. "'But the fellow replied he had not seen anyone.' "'But the man I drove up with,' said the captain, "'to which the fellow responded, "'Sir, you drove up alone.' "'This made Captain Wintour feel very uncomfortable, "'as anyone can imagine.' He found the owner of the inn, and when Captain told him of the companion and described him, the innkeeper looked grave and asked Captain to follow him upstairs. He took Captain into a room, and there on the bed lay the man who Captain had given a lift. But the man was dead, and had been dead for some time. In fact, an inquest had been held on his body. A day or two earlier, he had been found drowned in the stream, close to the bridge where the captain had first seen him. Traditionally, the ghost seen at the place where a violent death took place is that of a person who died there. But in one singular case from England, the ghost seems to have been that of a grieving family member. On a quiet road between Marlborough and Hungerford, in a small stone cross, are inscribed these words, A. P. Watts, May 12, 1879. It is a memorial to a 14-year-old boy named Alfie Watts, who had died tragically at that spot. The boy had been working for a man who hauled heavy loads with a large, horse-drawn cart. One day, the horses bolted, and the boy tried to stop them, but he fell beneath the wheels of the cart and died a few hours later. Villagers erected the small stone monument to his memory. Over the years, memories fade and the cross itself was often nearly hidden by grass and wildflowers. Then, in October of 1956, Frederick Moss and three friends were driving home from the movies when their headlights picked up a tall, Thin, clean-shaven man Standing in the middle of the road He wore a long brown coat And stood with his back to the spot Where the cross was almost hidden in the grass Mr. Moss blew his horn But the man in the road did not even react Much less get out of the way The driver angrily slammed on his brakes and got out to curse the man in the road as being a dangerous fool, but no one was there. Moss suddenly had the awful feeling that he might have hit the fellow. With his companions, he searched the area, but found nothing. There were steep walls on either side of the road and it seemed impossible that anyone could have climbed up one of them without being seen. Moss was deeply shaken by what had happened, and later told the story to his wife. She had been born in the area, though it was many years after the accident which killed little Alfie Watts. But still, she remembered his father Henry Pounds Watts, who died in 1907. The figure her husband described sounded exactly like the Henry Watts that she remembered. So why had he suddenly chosen to appear after all those years? There was a plan to widen the road, and if that was done the little cross might be destroyed. Perhaps the Father, or His Spirit as it were, may have wanted to remind people that the modest memorial to His Son should be preserved when the road construction took place. If that was the ghost's mission, it certainly succeeded. For when the road was widened, the little cross was carefully replaced nearby. Those were some pretty creepy stories, but I'm not through yet because I think we've got time for one more story, and I shall begin. This one is called Strangers on a Train. On a Friday night in July of 1935, Stanley Paris was going to visit some friends in the country. Paris was a busy man, and he had put some important business papers in his briefcase, intending to read them during the trip. When he arrived at Houston Station in London, he asked the guard for an empty compartment where he could read without being disturbed. In some British trains at the time, and many trains on the European continent as well, cars are divided into individual compartments, each with its own door, which can be locked. The guard found Paris an empty compartment and apparently locked the door to ensure his privacy. But just before the train pulled out, a very respectable-looking elderly man carrying a small black leather bag, boarded and entered the compartment. Paris was a, a little annoyed at first, but the latecomer sat quietly and did not disturb him. After a short time, Paris found that he was unable to concentrate on his reading and he fell into conversation with the man sharing his compartment. It turned out that the old gentleman was one of the directors of the railway company. Paris speculated that this was why he was able to get into a supposedly locked compartment. The fellow proved to be remarkably chatty. He told Paris that he was very interested in a new branch line. That was about to be opened. He also said he was carrying 70,000 pounds, a huge sum of the railway company's money. He was to deposit the money in a bank to pay for work that had just been completed. As he talked about the money, he patted the black leather bag as if to indicate that that was where the money was being carried. "'Aren't you afraid,' said Paris, "'to carry such a large sum of money with you?' "'Oh, no,' came the reply. "'No one would know. "'Besides, who would rob me? "'Certainly not you, just because I have told you. "'I am not afraid of anything.' "'Paris was less talkative about his own business affairs, "'but he did tell his fellow traveler,' "'that he was going down to the country "'and where he would be staying. "'By the way,' said the old gentleman, "'I know that house you're visiting. "'The lady of the house is my niece. "'Tell her that I hope the next time I come to stay "'she won't have such a huge fire in the blue room. "'She nearly roasted me last time.' "'As the train drew into the next station,' the old gentleman announced that this was where he got off. He took a business card out of his pocket and gave it to Paris. The name DeWaring House was printed on the card. After his fellow traveler left the train, Mr. Paris noticed an expensive cigar case on the floor of the compartment. He assumed that DeWaring House had dropped it, Sure enough, he could see Dweringhouse's name engraved on the case. He picked it up and ran out to the platform, hoping to return the case to its owner. Paris caught a brief glimpse of Dweringhouse at the far end of the platform, talking to a man. Paris was able to get a pretty good look at the second man, and noted that he had very distinctive sandy-colored hair. Then, unaccountably, Paris suddenly lost sight of the two men. It was almost as if they had disappeared into thin air. The porter on the platform was no help and said that he had not seen either of the men. Stanley Paris pocketed the cigar case and returned to his compartment. He was puzzled by what had happened, but there seemed nothing he could do about it. When he got to his destination, Paris remembered the message that he was supposed to give to his hostess. "'I traveled down on the train with an uncle of yours,' he said. "'He asked me to tell you that the next time he comes to stay, "'you should not have such a huge fire in the blue room.'" This simple and rather unoffensive message seemed to upset the woman so much that she had to leave the room. Her husband Paris. Her husband took Paris aside and explained that this was all very embarrassing. The uncle, Mister Dwaringhouse, had disappeared some months earlier. What was worse is he had taken seventy thousand pounds of the railway company's money with him. Though the whole incident had been kept very quiet. The police were looking for Dweringhouse, but had been unable to find any trace of him. "'As you can imagine, it's not a pleasant subject in this house,' said the husband. "'It so happened that among the guests at the country house that weekend were two directors of the railway company. They overheard the conversation.' and afterwards asked Paris if he could give them any more information about the man he had met on the train. "Uh, No, replied Harris, I can't tell you anything else except that I saw him and talked with him and left him, as I thought, speaking to another man on the platform of the station where we parted the directors continued to press him and eventually they asked if he would mind appearing before a full meeting of the board of directors and tell his story to them. Somewhat reluctantly, Paris agreed. In due course, the meeting was arranged. Paris felt a little foolish standing in front of a distinguished-looking group in a very elegant room telling his rather simple and, he thought, pointless story. In the middle of his narrative, he suddenly stopped and exclaimed, Well, there! There's the man I saw talking to Mr. Dweringhouse. That man with the sandy hair. And indeed, a sandy-haired man actually was sitting among the directors. He was the cashier of the railway company and he was completely taken by surprise when Paris pointed him out. "Uh, But but, but I wasn't there, he called out. I I was on on my vacation. The other directors insisted that the company records be examined. It was soon clear that the cashier had not been away on vacation, as he had stated. The police were called in, and within a few hours the cashier broke down and confessed everything. The cashier said he had been embezzling money from the railway company for years, but he was afraid that he would not be able to cover up his crime much longer. He knew that Dwaringhouse was going to be carrying a large sum of company money in cash. Cashier said he intended to steal the money and leave the country. He met the old man at the station and persuaded him to take a shortcut through a quarry. and then he knocked him on the head. He had only meant to stun the old man and get possession of his bag, but when the old man fell, Dweringhouse struck his head on a rock and was killed. With this turn of events, the cashier changed his plans. He hid the body and used the cash to replace what he had embezzled. The plan seemed to work for months perfectly. All suspicion had centered on the missing Dwaring house. Then, unaccountably, the scene of the meeting of the murderer and his victim had been reenacted on a railway platform before the eyes of Stanley Paris, well after the murder of Dweringhouse. And what about the cigar case? It is very rare in ghostly encounters that the ghost leaves behind any physical evidence. When the police examined all the circumstances surrounding the case, they discovered that the carriage in which Paris had traveled had been taken out of service for routine repairs on the day on which Dwaringhouse had disappeared. It had been put back into service for the first time on the day that Paris made his journey. It seemed probable that the murdered man was the last passenger to ride in the compartment before it was taken out of service. He may well have dropped his cigar case at the time, and Paris was the first to see it. The guard at Euston Station in London was also closely questioned. He was positive that on the day of the appearance, he had locked the door of the compartment, and that when the train started... Stanley Paris had been alone in the compartment. <laughs> that was a wonderful ghostly tale. A tale of revenge, basically. Or at least outing the murderer. (laughs) And I noticed that most of these stories for this episode did take place in Great Britain, but Great Britain does have great ghost stories. And sometimes you just might want to visit there and see those places for yourself, and perhaps even meet the ghosts in person. And so that ends this episode, and I... Thank you for joining and listening in. I hope that you have a good rest of the week and a good weekend. Please stay safe if you're traveling anywhere and don't pick up any strange hitchhikers or talk to any strangers on a train. Be sure to keep those doors and windows locked and check all the closets and under the beds. But by all means, have a happy haunting.